Ted Kluke is the award-winning author of more than a dozen books. Ted's works has appeared in the ESPN The Magazine, Sports Spectrum Magazine, and ESPN.com Page 2. A bi-monthly column for Sports Spectrum Magazine titled Pro and Con won the Evangelical Press Association Award for Best Standing Column in 2003. Ted is the author of Robert Griffin III, Athlete, Leader, and Believer, published in 2013, and collaborator for NFL Hall of Famer Jim Kelly on Playbook for Dads, published in 2012. Ted also played a season of professional indoor football with the Battle Creek, Michigan Crunch of the Continental Indoor Football League and lived to tell about it in Paper Tiger, One Athlete's Journey to the Underbelly of Pro Football, published in 2007. Part homage to Joe Plimpton and part gritty travelogue through the dingy arenas and bus trips that make up minor league football, this book was named a Michigan Notable Book for 2008, joining the ranks of such authors as Jim Harrison and Elmore Leonard. Game Time Inside College Football is a collection of pieces and interviews that Ted put together from all levels of college football. Included are features on a coach who tried to integrate the football program at Jackson State, a walk-on at the University of Michigan, a Heisman Trophy winner committed to rebuilding the inner city of New Orleans, and the annual NFL meat market that is the Senior Bowl in Mobile, Alabama. Ted's first book, Facing Tyson, 15 Fighters, 15 Stories, features interviews with uh, 15 men who fought men Tyson, Mike Tyson. Ted met these men in their homes, their gyms, their streets, providing a fascinating look at this savage sport and the men who populate it. Ted has played professional indoor football, coached high school football, trained as a professional wrestler, served as a missionary, and is currently a professor in Tennessee. I'm very honored to have Ted on our podcast today. Ted, Thank you. Welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today in this corona-filled world? Chris, I'm great, man, and uh, really happy to be on your podcast. I listened to your first couple apps and love them, so um, can't wait to chat with you. You have a great podcasting voice, and I want to see if I got this right, Ted. You are a Christian. You are a father. You are an author. You are an arena football player. You are a football coach. You are a fantasy owner in one of my leagues, the CFL. You are a professor teaching our young people how to write and communicate. You are a podcaster, and one of the most fascinating things, you're a professional wrestler. Did I miss anything? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the professional wrestling thing was only for one year, much to my wife's uh, you know relief, I think. And she told me, so I... I I trained as a professional wrestler for uh, for a book that I was working on, and she said to me, she said, you know, this is going to be the worst career move you ever make. And um, like most, <laughs> like in most situations, she was she was absolutely right. Uh, the book didn't do super well, but uh, but I had a blast doing it. So I guess that's worth something. That's still, that's still, I want I want to ask you more. But what what I was recommended is you're from Michigan and your passion project is the silver dome. And can you tell me about that? Cause I think that was one of the things you're actually trying to make a movie about. Is that correct? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, growing up in the Midwest, I actually grew up in Indiana and then later moved to Michigan, but we had these great dome stadiums, right? So I grew up going to the Hoosier dome with my dad to watch games and, you know, later on up, up in Michigan to the Pontiac Silverdome right at the end there when the when the Lions were still there. And just always kind of loved these places, right? Loved the aesthetics and loved how it reminded me of my childhood and my dad and these sorts of things. And up in Michigan, you know, the, the Silverdome was situated such that 
Um, the the Lions vacated, I think, in 2001 or 2002, and then the place just sat empty for like a decade. And the earth started to kind of take it back over, and stuff was growing in there, and the roof came down eventually. And I would see these like photo updates of it, and I was like, man, that would that would be a compelling place to shoot a movie. So wrote a feature film script about a guy who actually played for the Michigan Panthers, fictional guy, uh, who kind of has an existential crisis, leaves his family and goes to live as a squatter at his old stadium. So when you meet the guy in the movie, he's, uh, he's down on the field doing, you know, five and seven step drops and throwing the ball and working out like he's still a player. And I just thought it, it would be a fascinating kind of, setting to have a husband and wife talking and reconciling and eventually kind of fixing their marriage as they work through some of this guy's issues. So uh, that was the movie and that was the pitch. Um, Almost sold it to a couple of people in Hollywood at one, at one point who wanted to sort of change the story and make it more concussion-y and a little bit more lurid in that way. Whereas I just wanted it to be kind of a love letter to football and old stadiums. And I really wrote it so that my wife would understand the grip that the game had had on me all these years as a player and a coach, because she, she did not come from a football background or a a football family necessarily. So um, the movie was just a way for me to kind of explain all that stuff to her. And um, it eventually, so I didn't sell it to Hollywood, but I showed it to a couple of friends of mine who had played the NFL. Um, They were pretty fired up about it. One of whom uh, a guy named Glenn Pakulak was, at the time trying to make a run at being an actor and he's now, he's now an actor, but he ended up starring in the film. Uh, we got uh, a lady from a show called breaking bad AMC series called breaking bad. Uh, Carmen Serrano starred opposite him and we just had a blast doing this. You know, it was kind of a, kind of a dream come true to make a football movie with a lot of football people, you know? Um, so there were a lot of ex players involved in the kind of, executive producing side of it and we're in post-production now and lord willing uh we'll have a movie to show everybody by you know the end of the year oh wow in in the silver dome as it exists today was the backdrop it was yep we were there for 10 days so we you know we we made a low budget picture in the sense that you know we only had really one location in the movie the silver dome um, we had a very small cast so from from that standpoint it was very production friendly. So we got 10 days in the dome. Um, I think it rained nine of the 10 days. So true to form, <laughs> Michigan weather was yeah. was terrible while we were shooting. And we didn't have, there was no electrical, no running water. So we had to bring all that stuff in. It was, uh, it was a big challenge, man. But, but for somebody who loved those old stadiums and grew up going to those places, I mean, it was just like, uh, just an amazing experience for me. I loved it. And um it was fun to make a movie with your friends. You know, at the end of the day, that's kind of what we dream about as kids when we're telling stories and out, out in the backyard with a camcorder and to get to do it at, I think, a pretty high level with some pretty talented people was um, a huge privilege and kind of a dream come true for me. Did you direct it or was you just you consulted on site or did you pull it all together as the leader or what was your main role? Yeah, so I was a screenwriter and a co-producer, which means that you know, I, I pulled some people together, uh, a good friend of mine who went to the U of M University of Michigan Film School, Chris Regner, actually ended up producing. Uh, and we had a guy from the TV industry named Travis Andrews, who was our director. and He did a phenomenal job shooting in a pretty challenging place, you know, so trying to 
to light all these scenes and drag equipment through these these ruins of this old stadium was a big challenge for for Travis and his crew, but they did an amazing job. Well, congratulations. Now, what what is Michigan going to do with the Silverdome? What's its future? Well, they actually blew it up about a year ago. <laughs> so um, in true kind of Detroit Lions fashion, they, uh, they, they screwed it up the first time. So <laughs> we, we actually had a, we had a film crew on site the day that they were supposed to uh, dynamite the building and bring it down, but it, it didn't work. It didn't work for them that day. So they ended up doing it kind of on the sly the next morning. But um, yeah, it's no longer with us. In fact, I think we were one of the last groups of people inside the dome. Uh, I know there's another film production in there. Uh, Transformers Six shot a scene or two in the Silver Dome. Oh wow! Believe it or not, so they were in there right before us, and then it was us, and then I think they brought it down. So um, it was a pretty quick turnaround there. But we we loved it, man. I mean, we just loved it. It's it really is a beautiful place, and you know, my favorite thing always as a kid was to go into a stadium and like walk walk past the gates and see down to the field. You know, that was always for me, just kind of a magical moment. You know, you dream big in those moments when you're a kid and you dream about, you know, could I be there someday? And, and, um, you know, it was pretty neat just to sit in this quiet, empty, desolate place and, um, and, and wait for the story that I had written to kind of unfold visually. Uh, so it was, it was pretty cool. Well, congratulations. I'm looking forward to that to come out and how will you distribute it? Well, we've got a kind of a handshake deal in place with a company in Nashville that's distributed a lot of kind of independent, you know, art, art film type features. So uh, we hope to get something a little more formal in place with them. And then, you know, maybe you'll see it on Netflix, Hulu, Amazon Prime, one of these uh, streaming platforms. So awesome. um, that's the yeah, that's the goal in the idea, at least. So I think it's a it's a pretty good time to have content with everything shut down as far as production. It's, <laughs> I was it's a good say, time to be sitting on some content. Absolutely. For sure. Do you have anything else in the works or is that your big one? That's kind of the big one. You know, I'm actually doing, I'm doing another screenplay, just kind of a work for hire thing for a, a, a different film producer up in Michigan and uh, hoping to put some finishing touches on that soon and wrapping up a semester as an online professor, which was an adjustment that, that nobody saw coming and nobody really wanted, but, um, but trying to make the best of it. Well, that, that's awesome. Now I always thought one of the hardest things to do, I, I didn't even think of a screenplay, but writing a book, I always thought is just challenging. I'm, I'm very good at writing the abstract, finishing that out is, is always been my challenge, but you took it a step further. You not only wrote a book, but you wrote a book on our little hobby of playing retro <laughs> football and uh yeah that in it in it it's an interesting way in which you put the book together what it kind of inspired you to do that and uh how did that come together because i've not seen another one like it that kind of highlighted our hobby whether it was baseball football golf or uh in any sport yeah yeah that's a great question so at the time i was i was writing exclusively i was making my living writing books so um on one level it was you know, it was, it was productive in the sense that it was a book deal that I could get that the publisher seemed to be interested in. But I, I think beyond that, as a writer, I've always wanted to write the kinds of books that I, I would want to read. And, you know, nobody had written anything about our hobby. I was just starting to get really into it. Um, I just found the, the websites and things for the leagues and uh, connected with Brandon Rose, uh, who's our commissioner there with the OFL. And I was really getting into this thing. 
And I, I just thought that I would love to do some kind of narrative, you know, kind of walk through a season in, in one of these retro leagues. And at the same time, let it be a tip of the cap, let it be kind of an homage to a bygone era in terms of how the games were covered and what the uniforms looked like and how the, how the aesthetics of the game had kind of changed. I've, I've always loved the aesthetics of football, right? And especially, I think we all resonate with whatever the aesthetics were in our childhood. So for me, the, you know, the eighties, early nineties, kind of, kind of uniforms and shoes and turf and stadiums. And uh, one of the funnest things about the hobby is taking a deep dive into, into some of those things and researching the players and, I just loved it and thought that if I wrote about it, maybe a few a few people would find it interesting. So hopefully that's been the case. Yeah, I I really enjoyed it, and I I really kind of felt bad when you were writing about the pick for West Chandler and where you actually went back and you found footage of West Chandler before you decided between him and and Bubba and how much thought you put into it. And I take this mind numbing analytical approach to it and. It, it looked like your picks were so much more thoughtful than, than mine. And I, I really had a lot of respect <laughs> for that. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny with this hobby and, and I'd love to hear you on this too. You know, for me, it's this weird balance of trying to choose the guys that I think will help us win, but also at the end of the day, choosing guys that I liked in real life, you know, and wanting to have your roster stocked with, guys that you thought were cool back in the day and trying to build the kind of team that you would want to watch. So, you know, as, as I've entered into team building, you know, a lot of that's influenced by the positions that I played as a player, right? Like I played fullback. And so I love big blocking fullbacks and I love tight ends. And, um, you know, I think my teams are a reflection of, of the era that I grew up in. So, so yeah, for me, the picks were a little bit, a little bit of analytics, a little bit of romance, a little bit of nostalgia and memory making. And I think, you know, ultimately a lot of that just comes down to personality. If you're a more analytical type, you probably, you know, do, do that kind of research. And for me, I get, I get lost in the films, right? I just get lost in the images of these guys and watching them play. And, and I think I, the, the hobby, Chris, is a way to really appreciate these players. You know what I mean? And I, I think, we talk so much about analytics in a modern day context, even that we, we really forget what beautiful athletes these, these guys were, you know, and, and how unique they were and how unique it is to do what they do at that level. So the hobby is really a way to appreciate that. Yeah. And I, and I think the book did a nice job of kind of stepping back in, in bringing back those memories. Even, even when you were talking about, I, I thought the chapter on, the franchise quarterback, Belichick on the franchise quarterbacks, and just kind of reminiscing mm-hmm. about Joey Hamilton not be. How can he be a miss? How can Vince Young be a miss? <laughs> how could Jeff yeah, Jeff yeah. George, Jay Cutler be a miss? And at the end, they all did okay, but they they weren't what you thought they were going to be when you drafted them as a franchise quarterback. And I thought your chapter about Belichick and then Brady. I always felt Belichick did a nice job building a great team around Brady to give him a chance to win. And would yeah. he, would that team still be great without Brady? And I contend probably. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. It's a really interesting question, right? So I, as a, as somebody who analyzes this stuff, even as an armchair, you know, hobbyist, like we are, 
um, you're always looking for inefficiencies in the market, right? And the two that the two that kind of became clear to me over the years, both doing the hobby but just following real football, was to me how teams, fans, media, every everybody kind of overblows the quarterback position such that every year you get these trumped up prospects, right? So you get EJ Manuel going in the first round, you get Christian Ponder, you get these guys who Blake Bortles, right? They shouldn't be first rounders yet because everybody's sort of romantically attached to this idea of the franchise quarterback. You get, you know, these guys getting overdrafted. So I thought that was something that maybe I could exploit in our league. Um, and the other one was just the draft itself, right? So I don't, I don't know how old you are, Chris, but I'm, I'm 44. And I got 10 years on you. I'm 54. There you go. So in the, in the span of our lifetimes, right? the NFL draft went from this kind of niche fetishized like daytime entertainment on ESPN to this, you know, bloated, huge three night extravaganza like it is now. And I just think the draft itself is a little overvalued. So I've, I've kind of taken the tack of usually selling off my draft picks every year in order to get back players in positions of need. So um, from year to year, it allows me to stay a little bit more competitive where I can just very specifically fill needs because I think understandably guys in the league love the draft, right? The draft is one of the, it's one of the highlights of our calendar in these leagues where there's excitement and it kind of replicates the the real draft. But um, to me, I just thought if I can sell a first round pick and I can get two or three pretty high level guys in positions of need that I never have to be bad. Right. Uh, I never have to do the, the two or three years of going one in 15 and tanking and stockpiling draft picks. And I've always tried to play. I've always tried to play it in a way that would replicate the kind of pressure you would be under in real life, where if you went one in 15 for three years in real life, you would be gone. Right. Right. You, you fans might not accept the tanking strategy is, is, as great as it might sound, it might not be acceptable financially yeah. or people might not have the patience for it. Yeah. So that's a good point. And it works for guys in our league, right? And no disrespect to the guys in our league, our leagues that do it. But, uh, and I, I just, I'm such a toddler about losing. Like I've really <laughs> never learned to do it graciously <laughs> that I, I just couldn't stand that first year, the year that I wrote about in the book, the first year or two, I was getting shellacked, you know, and I, I was just like, man, I don't think I have the patience to do this for, for much longer. So I started buying some players. Well, it's interesting because I, I was thinking back after I read that chapter, and I, I wondered to a certain extent, did the Green Bay Packers take advantage of their time with Aaron Rodgers like they should have? You know, they got the mm. one, but was it if you're willing to make that investment in the franchise quarterback, you got to really put a lot behind it in order for that to pay off. And I, as a Packer fan, I'm from Wisconsin. I sometimes feel like mm. we've wasted these Aaron Rodgers years. So that's one of the things yeah, I reflected I, on after I read that chapter. Yeah, I agree. You know, you look at the, the kind of talent or lack thereof that he's had around him, you know, during his stay up there. And, and you do wonder what could have been, you know, for sure. Does it surprise you based on all of what, the country has gone through, what baseball has gone through, what the NBA has gone through, what college baseball and college sports have gone through, that both college football and the NFL 
are sticking with their start dates. Does does that surprise you? Or I, I'm excited about it. I'd love to see everything yeah. go on time. I just I kind of scratching my head about it. And then baseball players are being babies, kind of about even starting uh, their union. Yeah. I don't think they'll ever go this year. So I, I, I'm still kind of surprised about that. I was wondering what your take is. Yeah, man, it's a great question, and it seems to run person to person almost depending on where someone lives, right? So for example, I'm, I'm here in West Tennessee. I live, you know, kind of equidistant between Nashville and Memphis and the, the virus really isn't bad here. Um, in, in fact, it's not bad at all because I think as a way of life, we kind of social distance out here. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I think, Kentucky's I think in this the same part way. of the world, <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So in this part of the world, there's great excitement for college football starting. And there's a sense of it feels realistic because people are getting back out and about. And, you know, there hasn't been some, there hasn't been any kind of drastic uptick in cases. So, you know, for us, there's, I think, a little crackle of optimism there. But for somebody from a larger metro area like Chicago or New York, where they're still sort of in the thick of it, it's hard to imagine, you know, football coming back in the fall. And, you know, for me as a college professor, like I just really desperately want in-person classes to be a thing again. So uh, I'm pulling for that for the fall. My my sense of it is that there's so much money on the table. And even as rich as these owners are, um, nobody can really afford to, to give up a season. So I think we're going to see it in some form or fashion, uh, whether it starts on time, whether it's the product that we've been used to, it's hard to say. The, the really interesting one to be is college because I think we're going to see finally a scenario play out in which conferences realize they really don't need the NCAA. And like the SEC, for example, it's in a lot of areas where the virus really hasn't been that bad. So mm-hmm. I don't see the SEC walking away or those schools walking away from all the revenue that they get from football. So it's going to be really interesting to see it play out in the different regions. Like California, I think has said that their, their universities are going all online for the fall. And it's like, wow, well, what does that mean for the PAC 12? You know, are we just not going to have PAC 12 football? You know, it's interesting. I don't have any answers. I tell my students, they ask me the same questions and I'm like, look, you guys, I'm, I'm good at two things in this world. I'm a writer and a football coach, and that's a, that's about the extent of my expertise. So um, I don't know. I don't want to give any any definitive-sounding answers on this one. Um, you were kind of alluding to it earlier on. You kind of talked about, in football, the introduction of the combine. I think it was in 1982, and kind of this you know, draft shows, like you said, extravaganza that gets put on. And there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of evidence that scouting in the combine has improved picks. And, and, and you bring up some interesting players that are kind of near and dear to my heart. You, you're, mm-hmm. you seem convinced that Terry Bradshaw, Peyton Manning, Lyle Alzado, they would have never been discovered with current scouting combine techniques. And you, you brought up nobody would have had the patience for five years of brutal Terry Bradshaw football. And, and, I, yeah, think, and I, think right. about, I think about Marcus Mariota and the Titans. I mean, how fast they've kind of given up on him and, and, and such a talented pick yeah. and poof, he's gone. I, I, I just still believe yeah. there's something in him, but that brought back a lot of memories to me. And, and 
it seemed like you had done a lot of research on that and were pretty convinced mm-hmm. what we're doing today isn't all that great. Yeah, and I think the I think the results bear that out. You know, we're still missing 50% of the time, just like we were, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago. So even though we have more information at our fingertips than we've ever had and, and more access to these players via the combines, we're still missing a lot. I think one of the one of the interesting examples of that is a guy that I, I coached against actually last week in the OFL. Um, the, this this other owner had Vinny Testaverde at quarterback, and it was early career bad Vinny. You know, it was it was the Vinny of like thirty five interception type seasons, and you know, there's a guy who really suffered for almost a decade, but then you know he matured, he got older, he got in some better situations, and played until he was almost in his mid forties and played really good football for the most part. Um, he had really productive seasons for the jets, for the Browns, but I just think the way, I don't know if it's a reflection of just the way the league works now with, with player movement and free agency, like there's just less patience. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think in a 2020 context, Terry Bradshaw never gets a chance to prove that he's good. You know what I mean? Um, he would have, two and a half bad seasons and they would, they would bench him and put in Terry Hanratty or whoever was behind Terry Bradshaw and they would move on. So it's just a, I don't know if it was better back then, but it was different and there seemed to be more patience and the hook was a little bit, you know, less quick to come for a lot of these guys. Yeah. Cause the Marcus Mariota, Mariota show wasn't too long. And now a guy named Ryan Tannehill, which is, he's, he kind of had an up and down career and all of a sudden kind of, succeeded out of nowhere knocked the guy out so it yeah that's who I thought of and and, you know you you seem to focus on 1978 seems to be a year that you you kind of liked and you were talking about how how great a draft that was where you had Earl Campbell who I love Clay Matthews Wes Chandler Ozzie Mm -hmm. Newsom Lofton the Packer uh anything special about it or or just brings back memories yeah, well, that was the season that I was coaching through in the OFL. So I joined I joined the OFL when they were in the 1977 season, and I took over I took over what was essentially an expansion team. So this guy, some another owner, had left the league, and he left me with a team that had somehow no stars and no draft picks. <laughs> so <laughs> I have uh, one of those, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, the cupboard was pretty bare on my team. So that was 1977. We struggled. I think we won two games. Um, and the 1978 was really the first draft that I had draft picks for. You know, it was, it was the first chance that I had to really pick some players and help the team. So that was why the book took such a deep dive into 1978 as kind of a narrative thread. That was that was kind of what hung it all together. But so you went back uh, and yeah, kind of, my first... you researched those times or was there real memories there? That's what I was curious about. When you mentioned the Zamboni machine no. and AstroTurf, I was like, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, totally. So so yeah, it, it was a little bit of both. So I mean I I was a kid, I was born in seventy six, so seventy eight I was I was still really young. But you know, by the time the eighties rolled around and, you know, the AstroTurf carpets and the stadiums and a lot of the aesthetics were the same. And I actually got to play, I think I put it in the book, um, the old AstroTurf from Foxborough Stadium in New England. I ended up playing on that turf in an arena league and only a, like, complete antisocial football dork like myself would think that was cool. And <laughs> I, I think I was the only person in the world who cared about it, but 
as I was playing on that turf, I thought it was really cool. I'm like, man, imagine the great players that have played on this turf. And um, so just starting to do some of that research as a way in and yeah, the shoes, the jerseys, the coverage of the games, all that kind of flowed out of it. I thought it was kind of nice too, to pay homage to, to Randy Savigny and uh, Brandon mm. in the book is as well. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of a nice touch They're They're kind of pillars yeah. in the league and, you know, what really yeah. well respected and always fun to play against or get advice from. Oh, for sure. You know, Randy was the guy when I was just starting out who really taught me how to do it. And I think he taught me by fleecing me in a few trades early on. <laughs> uh, in fact, I know that he did, but, um, but no, just always a great guy to talk to and a really fun guy to chat with. And Brandon, of course, was, you know, to me, he's the ultimate commissioner. I don't know how he, I don't know how he does it. You know, I know he is not only the commissioner of the OFL, but he's got several other leagues going too. And he must be just an unbelievably smart guy, but, but also very gracious and and great, always available to answer questions. And it occurred to me that one of the most charming things about this league, especially early. So I was, I think when I started, I don't remember how old I was, but I was in kind of my mid thirties, maybe mid to late thirties. And sports media, like normal sports media, it's just so snarky and negative and cynical. So I joined this league with these older guys who have like manners and they're not always trying to be funnier than each other. And they're just good dudes, you know, and they kind of remind me vibe wise. They remind me of my dad, you know, I love dearly. And I'm just like, these are gentlemen. These are like good dudes who love football and, they're all over the country, all over the world in some cases. Um, I've never met any of them in person. I got close one time. I almost met Ed Brown uh, on a trip down kind of through Alabama down to Florida, but we, we weren't able to connect. But nevertheless, these are guys that I've been chatting with in some form or fashion for almost a decade. And you get to know people, you know, and, and it's a, it's kind of a neat manifestation of technology. You know, I, I, can be a little bit of a curmudgeon about social media and technology and those sorts of things in our culture. But this is one example of it, you know, just really being enriching. You know, I've I've learned a lot from these guys, but I've also just enjoyed their friendship because we share the same kind of niche interests. Yeah. That's the favorite part. And and I, it kind of hit home when you kind of mentioned every once in a while, when you might have that non-gracious, opponent you play that I think you talked about <laughs> hey I gotta be done at 620 and it kind of takes you aback or, or the person who doesn't chat at the end of the game if if you weren't supposed to mm-hmm. win and you win it it kind of takes you back mm-hmm. because for the most part that really doesn't happen yeah yeah that's right it's few and far between when that happens and I full disclosure though I, I think we've all I know I have <laughs> I've reacted in ways that I haven't been completely proud of, you know, after the fact too. So there's, there's lots of grace given and, um, and grace received. And, and, you know, I've, I've been really fortunate to have good experiences in it. And, um, it's, it's a, it's a way of enjoying football history that I never thought I would get to experience, you know, and I don't know how you are as you get older, but I, I find myself, being more and more interested in the past aspects of the game than even the current aspects. You know, I, I watch every Sunday and I, I love modern day football. I've got teenage boys, so they're, they're watching, but you know, during this pandemic, 
I've been almost as happy to just flip on a game from the late 80s or the early 90s and take a deep dive into that than I would be with anything current in sports. So um, I think if you're geared that way, the, the, the hobby can be really fun. Yeah, I think looking back at the, the retro football has been been a lot of fun to me so much that I'd like to see, hopefully we get introduced to a, a retro baseball league as well, because I also like the history of that sport as well. But I, yeah. I, I it's it's been it's been a it's been a fun journey for me as well. I wanted to yeah for sure. I wanted to ask you a little bit because you you were kind of, I don't know if you were alluding to it, but your time as a writer for ESPN. I know mm-hmm. that there has to be a lot of credibility to be able to write for them. I would also imagine that's a very competitive place in which to generate content day in and day out. I I would imagine that's that's not for the faint at heart. Yeah, it was interesting, man. So I never, I never ever in my life thought I would be a writer. And in fact, I went to college thinking I would just play football for as long as I could and then coach. So I really had no interest in academics, no interest in writing to speak of, but got to college, got hurt. So I, I, I broke the same leg twice, ended up having pretty extensive surgery on it. And there was a time where I, I thought I would never play again. And it actually ended up ruining, you know, the most of my college career. So I was really in kind of a crisis moment where I had to find another persona, you know, I had to find another interest and another thing to kind of get out of bed for in the morning. And fortunately, um, took some writing classes, had a, a professor who became a dear friend who encouraged me in it and uh, was incredibly kind uh, to me as I was getting started. And I, I think what I learned from football and what I learned from being a football player was how to grind incredibly hard. You know, I, I knew how to do work. I knew how to get knocked down and get back up again, which is a big part of the writing business, how to deal with discouragement. I wasn't always great at those aspects of things, but I at least knew how to keep going. You know, I think when you're a football player, it's hardwired into you to, to suffer. (laughs) You know, you, you kind of make your peace with suffering because so much of the game is so painful. So all that stuff really helped me in the, in the early years, the ESPN type stuff. But that was a time where the magazine business was really helped really healthy economically. The internet was just starting to pop. Um, ESPN was kind of, they were just finding talent all over the place and throwing some money at it and seeing what stuck. And I happened to be one of those guys. I had started a, an online, not even online, like a sports satire easy. And it was a satirical thing that we sent out once a week via email to a subscriber base. And ESPN found that, picked it up, um, they ended up giving me little biographical things to write in the magazine at the beginning. And those turned into longer pieces and some features online. And I got to do a NFL draft deep dive. It was whatever year Joe Thomas came out was the year that I got to write my, my deep dive kind of draft study thing for ESPN, which was really fun. And um, I think what I learned in that though, Chris, as a writer was I didn't want to spend my life, hanging around stadiums trying to get quotes from players uh i wanted to tell stories and i wanted to write long form so books i don't i'd always had even though i wasn't a great student early in undergrad i I always loved books and i always loved reading my dad was a pilot and whenever he would come back from a trip he would bring me a book from wherever he'd been so like a a used bookshop he would stop he would bring me books back and so i always loved books 
um, got really into that aspect of the career. I did a book about Mike Tyson in like 2005, 2006. That was the first one. And it really just grew from there. So um, I think football was, was formative though. You know, it helped, it helped me be able to weather some of those ups and downs that you face as a freelance writer. The long form storytelling, because that is a grind to get through, I would assume, not only the initial research process and then laying out the book and having that original idea, but then all the little details and editing that goes on to that. I have to assume that's painstaking. Yeah, it really is. And it's it's a lot like getting coached in that when you're a writer and you submit a book manuscript, you're you're kind of in love with it. And you've done it exactly the way that you've wanted to do it. But then a, an editor gets involved and starts asking you to make changes. And I tell you, it's a humbling process. And it's one that I used to kind of chase against when I was young and arrogant and immature. But I've really grown to appreciate it as I've gotten older in the business. You know, I, I can I can identify lots of editors who have made my books better. And once you kind of submit to that humbly your, your career can really fly. And, um, I tend to learn things the hard way. So it, it took me a little while to learn that, but, um, but it is, it's painstaking. Um, I tend to not be an amazing detail person. I tend to be more of a, more of a big picture person. And I like to, you know, set the scene and paint the picture and tell the story. But, um, I've, I've grown in some of the areas that I was weak in initially. And, and I mean, truly it was, it was God's grace that, I even got the chance to do this, you know, for a, a kid from where I grew up to even care about books or get a chance to write books was a, a huge thrill. So uh, I'm extremely grateful. Um, the Lord's been kind. My wife's been kind. <laughs> people, people in my life were very patient with me. So um, it's, it's worked out okay. And it seems like it'd be very rewarding then to help teach other young people how to do it as well. So, I mean, I'd assume your job as a professor is also very rewarding as well. Yeah, it can be. You know, it, it really is. I, I love the classroom and I really, really enjoy it. And I think, you know, you're a decade ahead of me here age-wise. But for me, I definitely reached a point where I was less interested in and enamored with my own dreams. And maybe that was just a function of... I got to do a bunch of stuff and I got to try a bunch of things and assuage a lot of curiosity. But, um, now truly like the happiest thing for me is to see one of my students get published or see one of my students get a job that they've worked really hard to get and, or a book deal. Um, those are the, those are the really special moments now. And to be able to mentor, to be able to make, to make the work as joyful as possible for them. You know, uh, I, I really believe that, we, we don't become writers because it's miserable. <laughs> I mean, we become writers because we, we love doing it. We love making sentences. We love telling a story. We love, like for me, I loved entertaining and delighting the reader. That was what I always wanted to do. And, you know, to be able to teach my students to do that and to be able to hopefully show them a good time as they do that, that's, uh, that's a pretty cool job. It could be a lot worse. Can you create a great writer or do they have something in them and you just mold them? Ooh, man, what a great question. Okay, so I think I think you can teach so I teach journalism. I think I can teach someone the steps that you take to write a news story or to write a feature or to write a news release or whatever. And I, I can teach them enough to 
to be able to be serviceable and make a living, but to truly be great, I think there's an element of magic in it. I really do. And I, I see it in my students every year where there are some who are great college students and they have four point GPAs and they really think a lot of themselves as students, but they just don't have that magical kind of element of storytelling that, that some of the more under the radar folks can have. And, uh, that creative, I think that's another that creative, that creative little knack or something deep within them that inspires those great stories, yeah. right? Something like that. Yeah. And I think it's a way of seeing things, you know, it's, it's, it's this whole aspect of if I send five people into the same room and say, identify the interesting thing and tell a story about it. Um, you know, there's that one person that has the unique, the unique angle, the unique perspective, like she's seeing things that the rest of them don't see. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think that's, that's part of the magic of it. You know what I mean? And, And it's a little bit ethereal. I feel like, different books or different times during my career. I've definitely had that, but you know, there, there are some projects where it just, for whatever reason, it didn't come together. And, um, you know, so you're trying to teach them not only to make great sentences and to be careful editors and to do the steps, right. But you're teaching them how to see things too, you know, how to go into a room or go into an interview and see things in a little bit different way. Um, and have a unique angle and not be afraid to have a unique voice and a unique style. Um, you think of the people that have really made it in the business and the people that we really admire, the David Halberstams or maybe Bill Simmons or whatever, like they weren't, they weren't afraid to take a shot. And that's one of the, one of the big things I'm trying to impart to my students. Yeah, that's, that to me is, and that's to me is important. I mean, you might have a dream for something you might actually have the brains for it, but it seems if you're a writer, there has to be something deep within you to to be able to produce great things. That I just, I, I wonder sometimes if, if they can be taught. Because I think when I was researching for this podcast, there was a YouTube video of you that that said sometimes the creativity is found in dark places. Sometimes you you, you hit mm-hmm. a low spot, and when when you mm-hmm. you hit those low spots, you know boom, something, something comes out of that positive that, that, you know, inspires a great story or inspires people. And, uh, yeah, I, I don't know that that resonated a little bit with me because that made sense in whether you see yeah. great songwriters, great musicians, great writers, great, uh, movie uh, actors, there's something, there's something a little different about them or something that happened to them personally that, that, that helped. Yeah, most definitely. And, you know, that's, that's true of, of me. I, I think Silverdome came out of a place like that where, you know, in my marriage, I just had to, <laughs> I had to explain the football thing to my wife. Cause we were just, you know, we were disconnecting over it. Uh, all, all the ways that we connect, that was one way that, that we weren't connecting. And, you know, I even think back to, you know, this, this book called facing Tyson that I did with all these interviews about, guys that had fought Mike Tyson, you know, so many of those guys were in dark places and dark circumstances, sometimes quite literally. Right. So the, my favorite interview in the whole book was with a guy named Tyrell Biggs, who was the 1984 U S Olympic super heavyweight gold medalist and went on to have a pro career and he fought Tyson. Uh, I met him on a street corner in, in Philly in a, in a really, really bad neighborhood at 11 PM uh, was when he got off of work and, 
Um, he had stood me up previously for the interview. So I had flown into Philly and he didn't show up. Uh, so I drove out, um, drove through the night, drove from Michigan to Philly and terrible weather. And it was dark and, you know, met him on this street corner. <laughs> I was like, this is a scary place, right? I don't know what's going to happen. Um, and there, there weren't a lot of people around and it could have gone either way, but he, um, he kind of folded himself into my little car and we ended up driving around through Philadelphia all night telling stories and ended up in an all night Chinese place. And it was one of the, the best interviews, but also just the best human experiences I've ever had. And, um, you know, that, that book in particular is full of things like that. That's kind of that's a neat story because I was I was going to ask you about that kind of switching gears on the Mike Tyson book that was fifteen separate that was fifteen different fighters if I remember correctly that you yeah that would have been a fun way to do it but I'd imagine it was also logistically quite challenging and it, it sounds like it could be <laughs> quite dangerous as well yeah it really was all of those things and um, it was a blast because it was my first book deal. I was still really young. I was really wide eyed. I was idealistic. I decided, you know, I'm going to travel to all these different places and interview these guys as a way to kind of get to know them and care for them and tell their stories. And yeah, I mean, it took us to a lot of wild places. I was, I was in the building the night that, that Mike Tyson lost his last fight. So I got to cover that one in person. Um, yeah, just all over the country really. And, and honestly for a kid who, you know, grew up in a cornfield in Indiana. It was, it was a great way to see the country. You know, for me, it was a great way to get to know America. It was a great way to get to know how these guys had grown up and the different places they'd been in and the, the highs that they experienced, but also the lows. Because, you know, in the course of that book, there were some guys who were still on the mountaintop. You know, I met Xander Holyfield at the time. I interviewed him in his just palatial estate there in Atlanta, right by the airport that he's since fallen on harder times and, and had to foreclose on it. But, um, you know, he was still on the mountaintop financially, whereas other guys were just barely making it and everywhere in between. So, uh, it was a, it was a really neat project and just a lot of fun things to see. I, I, I tell my students, if you can't write about boxing, you really can't write about it. Anything, <laughs> you know, uh, this, this, the stories are so rich and they're right in front of your face. And in most cases, the guys are so open and eager to tell their stories and they're so appreciative, right? They're appreciative of somebody who wants to listen and wants to get it right and wants to tell their story. You know, it was a, it was a, I tell people it was an easy book to write, um, from a writing standpoint, you know, the stories kind of came right to me and, and I had a blast with it. So that's interesting. They did want their story told and I assume financially other than evander not many of them it didn't help fighting tyson didn't help that much no yeah i mean it so for a lot of them the tyson fight was the biggest money fight of their career you know because tyson was the he was the biggest draw in the 80s and the early 90s so you know a lot of them if they were making big money they were doing it fighting tyson but in so many of those cases, their contracts were so bad because of who was promoting those fights. That's and, what I was worried about. Um, yeah. yeah, yeah, just the way the guys were the guys were kind of taken advantage of in that business. You know, a lot of a lot of them had the same stories along those lines, and it was sad. You know, there 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 was nobody really looking out for these guys in a lot of cases, and um, you know they they didn't have much to show for it at the end of the day. Any interest in uh, mixed martial arts? 
Man, you know, no. <laughs> um, not because I have any huge moral objections to it. It's it's just one of those things that aesthetically I, I could never get into it, you know, and this probably again speaks to personality differences in people and it's probably massively hypocritical of me to be cool with boxing and not cool with mixed martial arts. But to me, there, there was just something weird about sitting there ringside and watching guys fight in a chain link fence. <laughs> you know, for me, I think, I think it was the chain link fence. Honestly, it just seemed really barbaric in a way that boxing doesn't seem barbaric, which I know is like, a, a slippery slope of contradictions, but, um, so you, th- but yeah, so the, so, the, so the, so the cage bothers you the most. I gotcha. Yeah. The cage, the, cage the actual like, chain okay. link yeah. fence that they fight in. And, um, I don't know though. I, I know people who are really into it. There, there's a part of me that like, I wish I was into it so that I could get into these pay-per-views and things that are, you know, that are airing even now during the quarantine. But, uh, I just can't get there. Did are you, you into it? Do you like it? It it's more entertaining to me than people beating themselves to death in boxing. So, I but I have to admit mm. I did always like uh, Sugar Ray. I did like to watch mm. uh, uh, Evander, and I did like to watch Mike Tyson. So I never missed the big fights. Yeah. But since you, since those big names aren't out there anymore, every once in a while we'll watch an MMA fight, but not overly interested. I was curious if you know after that book if 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 you keep going with a with those stories. I wonder if there was the same interesting stories in MMA, I guess is where I was going. Oh, I bet there are. I, I think there absolutely are. And, and you know what, now that you mentioned it, Chris, it's been so many years, that book, as fun as it was, I really kind of lost my taste for boxing for a number of years after it. You know, I'd kind of, I kind of had enough of it. You know, I covered enough fights and listened to enough stories and seen enough guys who had lost their money. It, it, it sort of, I sort of lost my taste for it. Yeah, I um, see that. And, and oddly enough, it was, we had a pay-per-view party at our house with a friend who was from the Philippines and she loves Manny Pacquiao. And it was watching Manny Pacquiao fight Antonio Margarito. This would have been like almost a decade ago now. And they fought in the the new Cowboy Stadium there in Dallas. And it was a huge pay-per-view. And Pacquiao beat this guy really badly. But Margarito finished on his feet. It was a really courageous performance. I think he had broken – he had, like, separated his shoulder, broke his orbital bone, broke his nose, broke a couple of ribs. But he was such a brave guy, he finished on his feet. And I kind of – I kind of fell in love with boxing again after that. It sort of drew me back in. Ah. So – yeah, yeah, I don't know. I, I come and go with it. You know, I dabble in boxing from time to time. Now. If uh, if there's a subject in sports that you could tackle, like you said, well, it's a long-form book that you haven't done yet, what are you thinking about? What's out there for you? Are, are there's other things you'd rather do? Yeah, no, it's a great question. Um, I'll say this. I'm not as... I'm not as hungry to write books as I used to be, you know? So I think if I never wrote another one, it would be okay. But is it it because it's so hard? No, it's not actually. It's just because I think I've done it so many times. It no longer, it no longer seems exciting. You know what I mean? So like for me, climbing a different mountain, you know, doing the movie, getting that done, making a great film, you know, that feels a little more interesting, but I, I will say this to your question. 
I'm really fascinated in guys who have talent and squander it somehow, or guys who have talent and walk away inexplicably. So the whole like Ricky Williams narrative from a few years ago, this um, magnificent running back, he played at University of Texas, broke a bunch of records, won the Heisman, you know, had a had a short-ish career in the NFL and just kind of walked away from it in the middle. Um, he always seemed like a fascinating guy to interview. That would be a cool story to tell. Johnny Manziel, believe it or not, is another guy whose story is kind of fascinating. So interestingly, I was in the building for Johnny's very first game as a pro and his very last game as a pro in the, in the AAF. So, um, you know, I took my wife to a, a Detroit Lions, Cleveland Browns preseason game. And it was the first Johnny football NFL game. And then took my kids over to Memphis to see him play in the AAF. And then a week later, the league folded. So, um, so I was, I was there for the first and last Johnny experiences, but I, I think he was a guy who audiences were very polarized about. They either loved him or hated him, but he had this experience where he had all the talent in the world and kind of squandered it. And um, if a person like that is willing to tell their story, then I'm, I'm always here for that kind of thing, you know, because there's, yeah, there's nuance, there's vulnerability, there's a sense of regret. I mean, these are the kinds of people you want to hear from, right? (laughs) Because they're fascinating. That's what made Tyson so fascinating. Mike Tyson, you know, very open about his, his sins and his failures and his missteps along the way. And I think you know, the, the, the most boring books are the ones that you do with guys who just want to look awesome. You know, um, they, they just want to look like a hero. Those end up being the worst books. So some of these guys who have failed at a pretty high level, I'm, I'm pretty interested in that. Yeah. The Ricky Williams, that would be an interesting story. You, are, you also wrote a book about Robert Griffin, the third though, didn't you? Yeah. 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 That's right. So that was really kind of before he got interesting. It was, it was one of those things where he was like halfway through his rookie year was burning the league to the ground, you know, just doing an amazing job. And the publisher, they just wanted a book, you know, really? And uh, yeah, got very little access to him or or really people close to him. And the, the, the deadline was really quick. So it was a quick turn that, that book ended up being to me, more about quarterbacking and more about how the league works vis-a-vis quarterbacks than even about RG3. Um, if you're interested in this kind of like uh, the, the quarterback is overblown sort of theory, that would be, that would be a book to pick up that would be interesting. I think I am fascinated with it because I'm, I'm tempted to not ever draft a great quarterback. So that's why I was asking you about that. Yeah. When, when, you, you know, that's how that's no, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. I, finish your thought, please. Yeah, I was going to say that's how I've done it. You know, that's how I've done it in these in these sim leagues. I've always wanted to see if I could do it without a great quarterback. So um, my quarterback right now is Bobby A. Bear, uh, <laughs> the old USFL and, and New Orleans Saints quarterback, and he's probably the best quarterback I've ever had. Really? And okay. um, you know, yeah. So I, I I try to take these kind of middling guys and you know, put great offensive lines in front of them, put a great running game around them, maybe a receiver or two that can do some damage, um, and then see how far I can get without, you know, more mortgaging the farm for one of these super big ticket, big name, Elway, Marino, Kelly type guys. 
and and then still have all the after you mortgage the farm still have to do all the work to put a good team around them yeah that's right that's right yeah it seems like and I'm, I'm sure you've noticed this too in your leagues but it seems like there's all these guys in the league who have the elite quarterback and kind of nothing else so you know the guy who has dan marino he'll be languishing in uh, re- relative obscurity in the league for years because there's nothing around them, and uh, I never wanted to have that kind of team. I guess. Yeah, I don't. I, I don't blame you. As, as much as your eyes light up when you see them on the draft board, it, it might not be worth it. <laughs> when when you, yeah. I, I'm curious about, and then I'll let you. I, I got two two questions, and I'm I'll leave you go on this Thursday night. When you put sure. pastime together, the idea for pastime. Mm-hmm. Did you have that whole book laid out, or did that book evolve? Uh, it evolved. And the, okay. the books almost always evolve based on access that you have to different people. So I knew, I knew roughly that I wanted to write this kind of narrative journey through one of these seasons in a sim league. So I knew that, I knew that 1978 would be the unifying thread, and it'd be a chance to talk about team building and some of these theories. You know, some like the big back theory, the fullback theory, the, um, you know, tall, lanky, small forward type guys don't make good pass rushers theory. You know, just all these little things. If that you get been, sacked a lot, you won't win. That other one, that theory. Yeah. If you get sacked a lot, you won't win. You know, yeah, I like so that. Like, like, that was funny. <laughs> right. All these, all these little ideas that I had over the years. So I, I knew I wanted a narrative thread with 1978. I knew I wanted a chance to kind of essay about these particular topics and then I knew I wanted to interview or two you know so I wanted to talk to Brandon I wanted to talk to Randy I wanted to talk to some old players from that era so I think I I don't remember who I was able to interview for that book maybe just one guy but I talked to um, a guy who played center for me in 1978 and uh, I'm not remembering his name I'm having a senior moment but uh, but he was great too so um, I roughly had an idea of what I wanted to do, but then the way the season unfolded, the way the draft unfolded, you know, the, the book kind of changed a little bit, but that's pretty, I think that's pretty common for nonfiction. You okay. know, you kind of go into it with an idea. Um, but then the final product tends to change from the idea a little bit. That's what I was curious about. Now I'll end with this. I, I enjoyed the happy rant and, uh, you're, you guys, I like your little group. It, it sounds like a fun little group to get together with and, and do a podcast. Yeah. How, how did uh, I, I know you guys? Uh, it was it was built around your 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 involvement with your churches, but uh, yeah. What what was that? The was it an educational podcast? Was that the original idea to educate? Uh, no. Yeah. What what was the idea behind it? I thought it was a, it, it was very entertaining. Yeah, no, I appreciate it, man. And thanks for listening. And, and entertainment is definitely the goal. So I think because it, in my heart, I'm like a 98 year old man. I'm kind of, I've always kind of had an uneasy relationship with social media. Like, I really don't like it. I don't like Twitter. Um, I didn't like Facebook when I was on it. I got off Facebook like a decade ago. So I've, I've always had this uneasiness with that. But in the book business, the agents and the editors and stuff, they, they really want you to be active on social media promoting your product. And I, I kept saying, no, I don't want to do it. Um, but then these guys approached me with this podcast and they were like, do you want to, do you want to do a podcast? It'll be talking into your computer once a week. We'll hook up via Skype. I was like, you know, 
it kind of sounds fun. I always liked radio as a kid. And I, I said, it, it seems like an easy thing to say yes to. So I said yes. And at the time, I was probably 15 books deep into my career. Uh, the other guy, Barnabas Piper on the show, was the son of a famous theologian, John Piper. And, uh, and he, he had done some writing. He, he had a few books at the time. And then the third guy, Ronnie Martin, uh, was a musician. He was a recording artist who had, who had become a pastor. And he happened to be a good friend of mine. So, yeah, the three of us are just good friends. Uh, we've been doing it for like six, seven years now. So we kind of got in early on the podcast thing. I think one of the, one of the things I learned from Bill Simmons, who, who was at ESPN and who's now you know with The Ringer, he was really early to a lot of these technologies. So in addition to being just a super talented writer and storyteller in his own right, he was first to the blogosphere. Uh, he was first to podcasting. And I think it really allowed him to kind of establish a, an audience and a foothold in, in a unique way. So yeah, we've been chipping away at the Happy Rant for years. We've got a, a pretty big audience now, like 50, 60,000 downloads, uh, which allows us to get sponsors. And, and we enjoy it, though. At the end of the day, it's something we enjoy doing. Uh, we really like each other. We do a couple live shows every year. And, um, and we have a blast with it. And it's something that I get to show publishers as a way to promote my books and my projects that isn't social media. So I feel like it's a, it's a win for me. I, I would have to agree with you. I would rather do the podcast in any day of the week than the Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok pain. So yeah. I, a, yeah. a, amen to you and, uh, and, uh, and to all your work. And I can't thank yeah. you enough for the, uh, spending an hour with me today on my little podcast it, it was it was fun to read your book it was fun to talk to you the the, the first time we kind of met it was fun to, to research research you it was fun to have this conversation tonight and uh I, I know i've been blessed i only ask god for simple things and this is well beyond that so i appreciate it <laughs> oh good man praise the lord and listen i've enjoyed it you know i I really love talking about football and I love talking about old football and, and I love, I love people who are passionate about what they do. And, and yeah, when we, when we first met and chatted, I, I could tell you were really passionate about this and I knew it would be a fun conversation. Now, before, before you let me go, yes, sir. I want to know like sim football wise. So like retro football wise, who are you like, what players do you like the most who are on your rosters right now? Like, who are you most excited about? So when I took over I'm in, in the CFL, I took over in the 1968 season. And when Brandon was talking to me about taking that, John Hadle was on the team and I didn't have to go any oh, farther. Nice. Didn't have to go any farther in Pete Banasack. And I noticed you brought up Pete Banasack in your book. And I was like, okay. oh, I love Banasack. I know me too. I yeah. was like, now I have nothing else, uh, but boy, those guys are are it for me. And that's that's one of the things I was actually. Brandon gave me quite a bit of history on John Hadel that I didn't know, so I think I got yeah. four or five good years where I have a chance with him. I've not had a very good yeah. year this year, so if I can make a good, few good picks around him, I might maybe be a five hundred team next year. So I'm kind of excited. Man, that's awesome! So cool and and so fun to have a guy that you like. I, um, I was Hadle, a big Packer, big Packer mistaken, fan. Yeah, so he had a he had a pretty significant cup of coffee with the Packers back back at the end there. He did, and um, 
you know, kind of got a little old and fat, which shout out to fat guys. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. That's the Wisconsin but, um, influence. Yeah. <laughs> oh, absolutely, man. Yeah. Wisconsiners, they, they know how to enjoy life. I'll tell you that. So I've, I've never had a bad time in Wisconsin. Yeah. They're tearing um, it up right now as they're breaking the quarantine. So. <laughs> oh, I know it. I know it, man. Yeah. Well, that's cool. I, I hope you, I hope you do great and enjoy those guys. And, um, yeah, that's that's one of my favorite parts of the hobby is just having having guys on my teams that I like. It's fun. It's fun, and I uh, hope you and and your boys and your wife stay safe. And hopefully, we'll get this uh, country open again. and And I hope we get to talk again soon. And uh, Ted, again, I really appreciate you spending time with me tonight. Hey, my pleasure, Chris. Thanks so much for having me on. Take care.